Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God. At the place he will choose is a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and all your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your town, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotments or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, and the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. The word of the Lord. Keep this all together here. Would you like to know this morning one of the things that amazes me? <laughs> yes, Pastor Cody, what's one of the things that amazes you? Well, thanks for asking. <laughs> one of the things that was, amazes me is the generosity of this congregation. You know, as a pastor, you come across like little bits and pieces of here's kind of what, you know, if you're to look at it in the statistical frame, this is what giving, you know, typically looks like per capita, what have you. But by any metric and measure that you have, this congregation is extraordinarily generous in its giving. Last year, Jack will correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, but I believe I'm pretty on point here. The congregation received $235,000, which it then took, vested in to God's purpose, God's ministry, God's mission for the kingdom. And what this congregation could have done, you all could have collectively have done, I was curious about this, this amount that was raised last year, is you could all have purchased a 55-foot a 55-foot Yoda. Don't, don't, be, you know, don't, don't be deceived by its outside. It's very spacious in the interior. Oh, all the yacht parties you guys could be having right now with all the money that was raised last year. <laughs> yeah. So you're wondering, is this still an option? Can we still? No. I, I, instead of doing that, you took... What God had blessed had given to you, and you said, may this also continue to be a blessing. You committed what God gave to you, and you gave it back to the Lord in hopes that God would bless, multiply, enrich what God has given there so that it might be used to further his purpose and his mission there. This is a, a, an old Christian depiction here of the widow's might. This morning... This morning, as I was reflecting on these words of Moses, 
And I was thinking of many of you who have over the years, as I've heard your stories and as I've listened to you talk about the ways that you see God has been at work in your life, has blessed you, that this opportunity that's spoken of here in kind of an ancient form continues to be present in your life, that you do so in this act of thanksgiving and celebration. For those of you this morning that continue in this act of giving, But maybe it's become more of a struggle. Maybe it's become more difficulty. Maybe the wonder is, does this actually do any good at all? And maybe for those of you this morning who just say, it seems like we're doing this every week. There's a plate going around and you test out your aim. Other people seem to be giving and you try to give something else. Well, for all of you this morning, I hope that Moses' words to Israel are also a word to you. Pastor Jeff has been taking us through these sermons of Moses. And this is the moment, right, just like I am standing here before all of you right now. Moses was standing before the whole congregation, the people of Israel on the banks of the Jordan. And maybe also, like many of us, Israel had a past behind them of wandering of wondering what life might actually and truly hold in this uncertain future ahead of them. But Moses here is preaching to them about the promised land. And being in the promised land, the promised life to which we were all made and destined, created and designed for. Moses here is talking about worship is life and life is worship. And what you find, what Pastor Jeff has pointed out time and time again, week after week as we've been going through these sermons, is God's unrelenting graciousness and commitment to Israel. That this is the God who makes all of this possible, the God who brings them up, who frees them as we sung this morning. Sets the captive at liberty there. And in doing so, allows us to respond. That what you find in these sermons that Moses is giving to us is that God's wholehearted commitment, God's wholehearted graciousness, fits like hand and glove to our wholehearted response to God. So, what Moses would have us do here this morning is be able to respond in such a way to give our lives fully, and in doing so, emptying ourselves only find that there is more in this God who is abundance, who is life itself. So this passage, last week, Pastor Jeff, the passage right preceding this is about kosher dietary laws. It's about what you can and can't eat. And so this week, as Moses continues the words that he's giving to Israel. He'll talk about what you do with what you've materially been given, with what the land produces, the abundance thereof, that we can participate in, that we can share in, as a way of continuing this one act of making all of life being this act of worship. But you may be wondering to yourselves, where where in the world does all of this come from? You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. 
I think for a lot of you, the, the, the sense of where this kind of the, the notion, this giving, this exchange that's happening is one that's pretty common, both in the ancient world and now. If you can imagine if uh, Tom Boyd had a large plot of land, right? And Tom, in this case, you're a master gardener. I'm just going to say, you, you, are, you are the Zen master gardener. You have this large plot of land, you're a Zen master gardener, and then you have me, and I'm right next to Tom, I'm not a master gardener. I'm terrible. I'm off. I don't even know what I'm doing. I mean, I'd probably take the hoe and I'd lop off my own foot. So, um, so you have Tom as a master gardener. And what he does in this case, he has more land than he's available to really tend to and care for. And so in this scenario, Tom has too much land. I probably have the right amount of land, but I don't know how to care for it. So the land suffers and both of us suffer. Tom can't get the yield out of his land and I can't get the yield out of my land. But there might be a mutually beneficial way that Tom and I can work together. So Tom invites me to come onto his land, and he gives me a plot of ground in it. And Tom has all the understanding, all the know-how, perhaps all the tools and all the materials. He invites me to work that plot of land. And with his expertise, his wisdom, kind of what he has available to him, and my ability to be present and intimately care for that plot of land, maybe if he hires some other chuckleheads like me, I don't know. But you get them all in there. Now the land itself is producing much more than it could have with he and I independent and a part of each other. Tom's seeing that increase, and I am. And me, for working that intimate space, that plot of land so deeply, I'm going to take the lion's share of what it produces. Tom, who's been less involved but probably working with some other people, right, at that point, is taking a little bit of each of them. Now all of us benefit in this arrangement. The land benefits, I benefit more, because now I know how to do it, and Tom benefits, because he's able to maximize and use that land, right? So this is the portion that I give to Tom, is Tom's kind of the, uh, the ultimate caretaker. He's responsible for me and for all the land. He's kind of the owner, so to speak, maybe in our modern parlance. And that's kind of where this notion comes from. Now it's not an immediate leap there. It's not immediately, this kind of human arrangement for all of you should seem somewhat familiar. But it's not an immediate leap there to go necessarily to this divine relationship, this human and divine interaction. Many of you should think when you think of gods, especially in the ancient world, volcanoes, hurricanes, right? Gods are these destructive forces that just kind of, they have no, <laughs> no they draw no quarter, I guess, or uh, they... They do not hesitate to kind of run havoc and chaos through our lives. So maybe somebody might try to give something. It's more like the mafia in that case. Maybe gods don't rain down your wrath on me. But to see God as this custodian and this, cust this caretaker of the land, it's a part of this story. To see God as one who loves us, who is our, our, our sustainer, our redeemer, as the master gardener is something very unique and remarkable about this story that's being told that Moses is telling Israel, that God is indeed the one who is over all things. You see the beginning of this with Abraham in Melchizedek. I had this whole joke about I was going to do with the Genesis, but now I was going to yank Alicia's chain, but she's gone. She's with the preschoolers. But Abraham gives a tenth of what he's earned to Melchizedek, who is priest of the Lord Most High. And so in that case, giving it back to God through his authorized representative, Jacob promises when the Lord says he will bless him that he will give him a tenth 
of everything, right? And so you can kind of see this as God who is the one over all things, through, through whom all blessings come, and now because he is the one who creates, who sustains and preserves, give this back, just like with Tom's plot of land, I give him this little portion of it because in reality, Tom is the one who's helping me to, to see that, to ca- take care of that plot of land as best as I can. You may have the question of, what in the world is this about? Why is there some specific tenth here? How does that figure into this whole thing? Just one other thing here on, in terms of the context. Can you think of places, if I can flip that number around where you see the number 10? I have those two images up there, very famously so, right? Moses comes down from the mountain there with the tablets of stone. How many commandments written on those tablets? When Israel is leaving Egypt, how many plagues are there? It's kind of the seventh plague there. There's 10 of them, right? In the ancient world, I mean, let me, let me do this actually for a second. Let's see if I can. Hold on. How many fingers am I holding up? That's a vision check for you right there. Vision check. Every major accounting system in the world, every major accounting system in the world is what's called base 10. It has 10 digits to it. Now, there are other base mathematical systems. Dave Pingray could sure probably tell you a lot about them. But most, most counting systems have 10 digits in them. And there's two important things to this this morning that kind of helps to set this up well. The first is kind of just simply pragmatic, right? You have 10 fingers. It's really easy to count on those fingers as you're going through things that you need to kind of numerically separate out. You have to remember that if I tell you the number 371, you all just saw in your minds a three in the 100s place. Well, I'm doing this backwards. It'd be a three in the 100s place, a seven in the uh, tens place, and then a one in the ones place. We have what's called, and it was invented in the medieval period, uh, a positional decimal system. It makes adding and subtracting, dividing, multiplying really, really easy. Things that you and I could do with a piece of pen and paper in two minutes only the greatest mathematical geniuses in the ancient world could do. You'd have to imagine, if you guys know what Roman numerals are, try, try adding or subtracting or multiplying or dividing Roman numerals, and that gets a little bit closer to how difficult it was in the ancient world to do that kind of thing. So first of all, it was pragmatic that you have all, all number systems have these 10 digits as the full set there. But the second is also, I think, maybe the more important one here that in the ancient world, they oftentimes saw what you could see in the natural world. Say, for instance, when I look at Art, or I look at Bob, or I look at Judy, and I'm able to see in them this glimpse in the splendor of God, right? They are these windows of God's own goodness. In their life, I see something of what God is like. They are these windows to the transcendent, to what is deeper than our world. So also, when they looked at our hands and they saw 10 digits makes this whole set, they saw a completeness in the number 10. Just like, again, the moon makes its revolution every 28 days. You divide that in four and you get the number seven. 
Seven has this very, very big context in the ancient world, even beyond Israel, so that Paul himself can say in Romans 1 that the Gentiles, which is me, are without excuse when it comes to God because God points all of these things in the natural order. You can already see the fullness of God's glory, and we just get the wholeness of it, that indeed God did create the world in seven days. And so that natural marker is something that opens up to that fullness of revelation. So our hands and our toes open up to this sense that 10 is a number of fullness. If you take that 10, right, and you flip it back around, and you make 10 shares of something, one-tenth, to give some part one-tenth of it, it's the part that represents the whole. It's the part that represents the whole, because when you have these 10 shares, this is the full, the, the, the complete, the total amount. And so you give that part, recognizing that when you give that part, the whole of it actually belongs to whom you're giving it to, but you can give it in this miniature, in just this part, and it's sufficient to represent that it's not only all of this, but also all of me, at least in the context of the ancient world when they understood, tend to be that number of completeness. So, what is the tithe here for? You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Okay. So, you guys understand this kind of concept of me being a tenant of Tom's here? Maybe some of you have been tenants or leased things before. What does the landlord or the lesser do with what you give to them? What do they do? Buy a 55-foot yacht? I don't... <laughs> no, no, I, I, that's a, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I actually know some, some property owners. You're usually lucky if you can get back what you've, you know, with upkeep and maintenance and all that. But, but you don't know. You, you never know. I mean, they just kind of take that. They do with it what they will, the typical one. What does God do, though, with what's given to God in this case? What? <laughs> a little bit, but a little bit more than that, right? And you shall. Who is you? Yes. All those who give it. God takes what's given here. Right? And doesn't, you know, the huge Scrooge McDuck storehouse with the gold and then goes and dives in it. Right? Because this is kind of the, the bizarre thing. God takes what's given here and throws a feast of which we are all the guests. God has a celebrate. God has a party with the goods. God turns back around and says, I have given these things to you and as you give them to me, so then I give them back to you. But now it's going to be for what it's actually for. I was thinking of um, my sister a little bit this week, who uh, I'm sure she does the same temptation that all of us do. I just, I just remember I've had a conversation with her about this before. Sometimes people will give her monetary gifts. This is why you don't give monetary gifts, at least to my sister. She takes them and she uses them to pay bills right? And you're like, no, this thing was, a, it was, it was a gift. It was meant to be given. It was, it was meant to be the cause, the occasion of something joyful. 
And let's just take for, for one more unending sort of, you know, life can seem like this just sequence of drudgery, of one task after another, one errand after another, one bill after another. And what God here is doing with the people of Israel as they come into the promised land so that they can share in that promised life is yes, as they set apart this tithe, yes, as they give this tithe, they remember who they are and who God is. And what God is going to remind them is life is not just drudgery. Yes, the promised land, even the promised land is not perfect. It's not yet what it ought to be. But for this one moment, as you see increase in your lives, and you're tempted to store it up, you're tempted to think, okay, well, if I can just preserve and hoard all this, maybe in this moment, I'll actually be able to secure my destiny, and then, of course, it never actually ends up working out. God says, take this, give it back to me, and then I'm going to give it back to you. But now, now what I'm going to command you to do with what you have given to me, what's become mine, is you are going to sit down and you're going to celebrate this moment. Because this is just but the merest, the merest, smallest sign of what awaits you eternally. And also now, if you will, receive it. Because what does God do with this? And this is the great thing here. As you go down, Rosalie, it's obviously, like I said, you have the Levites in there. You have the people who come and tithe. But it says this, and the Levite, because he has no portions or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are with you in your town shall come and eat and be filled, right? God takes what we have given, what God has given to us that we then give back, that God then gives back to us, and multiplies and blesses it so that what? Not only can we eat and celebrate, but even the person who's wandering by, even the foreigner, even the person who went there who was trying to get maybe up to Samaria and took a bad detour and they wound up in Jerusalem, now they'll be able to be eat and to be filled. God is able to take this one-tenth. If it's given in a way that Israel is able to say, in this I'm giving you everything that I am, and everything that I have. And he's able to do more with that one-tenth than we could have done with the whole part of it if we had kept it and tried to use it on our own. This is the promise that Moses is giving to the people of Israel this morning. So, when is the tithe given? You have to kind of love this this morning. Um, <laughs> True, true style here. When is, when is the tithe given? The tithe happens any time, right? As you read that very first verse, when the field multiplies, when the field yields its increase for you. It's simply given, it's only given, in fact, whenever God has, whenever you have benefited or gotten increase from something that God, so to speak, oversees, cares for, or owns, which is Right? Jesus' famous line there, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's, what ultimately is God's. And what you have to love about this is that there's not an age constraint, there's not a time constraint, there's not a place constraint. Is the same Lord who makes it rain on the just and the unjust, as the same Lord is able to in good and bad seasons be gracious, so as the same Lord gives to us without reservation, there's always this reciprocal action of giving back. Part of the reason of all of your faithfulness, week in and week out, it is in likeness to, I, in likeness to the tithe. I will say this, this might be an extra bonus. 
Um, Pastor Jeff um, sent me a, uh, uh, an image this week for inspiration. It, it was an image, and it said on it, um, non-tithers board, and it had some uh, papers on it. And uh, I was like, this thing has got to be a hoax. This has got to be a hoax. I can't believe that this would. So I started going on the, on the internet to see if I could find this. Um, and I'm still convinced that it's a hoax. I couldn't, I, I went to several different places where the image was posted. I think it was actually somebody who's post-Christian. I think that they were just probably angry and making a bad joke. Um, but, uh, but when I went, when I did that, I got all like knee deep into the midst of, there's a lot of, uh, vigorous, uh, debate over whether or not the quote unquote tithe is a requirement, um, of one's, you know, if, if one is, trying to be faithful to God. I could give you, there is absolutely no New Testament mandate about tithes. I could give you, if you twist my arm on it, my two cents on it later. Um, but I would definitely not encourage you as I'm talking about this. Obviously, in ancient Israel, this was a practice. I think there's a lot of ways to see wisdom, wisdom in it, just like the New Testament never commands us to gather every seven days. I don't think so. I think Hebrews talks about not gathering, you know, don't, don't forsake gathering, and a lot happens on the Lord day, but it, it never mandates it. It's just what we do, um, and it's not like if you don't do it, somehow God's going to strike you with lightning or something. <laughs> okay, Pastor Jeff, well, Pastor Jeff supersedes my authority, so he may. Um, 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 so I just, that's probably a, a side. I didn't know there's so much vigorous debate on it. I could give you, again, my, my two cents at a different time. The manual does talk about, again, maybe using it at least as a guideline is thinking about. But I, I love this, this final thing. This is the last thing in this passage here. I just kind of want to, it ends with this line, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands and all that you do. Um, right? Pastor Jeff has been up here any number of times and told you that um, this, is, this is not an investment strategy for your portfolio. I've um, been listening through the book of Job this week. I think many of you know Job is one of the, he's, of course, exceedingly, uh, has, has a lot, if you, at the very beginning of the book of Job. And uh, God does not rebuke him for his words. If you've ever read through, Job has a couple chapters there right before Elihu speaks, where he talks about how how insistent he was on making sure that he contributed to the needs of the orphan and the widow and the fatherless. Um, he gave, by at least his own account, which again, God does not rebuke, very, very generously of what he had been given. So you can see that in his life, uh, giving is not necessarily a way out of struggle. It's not a way out of um, affliction. It's not necessarily a way to be free from difficulty. If you look at Jesus and the apostles' lives, the apostles who themselves say to him, Lord, did we not give up everything for you? It wasn't necessarily the sort of blessing that would look like an increase in one's account. But the truth of the matter is, is that it may be the greatest blessing that God gives us, even though on paper you seem to have less when you give to God. Because it frees us from this notion, right? To be the man or the woman who would swallow the whole world and still be empty. The person who would gain all things unto themselves and yet still find themselves empty-handed. The one who would be surrounded by people who seem to be singing your praises, love, and adore you, and yet still feel alone. 
and abandoned. The person who has the power seemingly to change nations in the world and yet still feel powerless before the brokenness in their life. As we give, we remember the only one and the only thing that in our lives can be at work in all of those places. To remember that we could get everything that we thought we wanted and still yet not actually get what we needed. You know, I'm convinced of this. As God gives us this promise here through the words Moses. That maybe as we give, we don't live in marble palaces. But where God blesses, the houses that we do live in, those shelters that we have, when the wind and the rains come, they don't fall down. Maybe we don't have granaries and storehouses as large as those of Egypt. But I am convinced that with a few loaves where God blesses, it will be more than enough to feed everybody who comes. Maybe we don't have jugs of flour and jars of oil. But I'm convinced that where God blesses, the one jug and jar that we have don't run out. The gift that God gives us in this blessing is that blessing which we most want. This life that only opens up to more life. This life that promises us not just the hope of, not just the illusion of peace or security, but peace and security itself in Christ. You know, for ancient Israel, God commanded that they do this. They come up when the fields, when the flocks gave it, and it was kind of this annual event and this celebration and this feast that would be thrown. People could take what they had been given, and then they had this opportunity to give it back, and as they did, reminded, be reminded of the God who welcomes us home in this feast, in this celebration, and in this rejoicing if we will receive that life from him. But things change a little bit when it comes to Jesus, right? Because as Jesus comes, he is the fullness of God who comes in human form. And he does this one thing that none of us could ever do. He doesn't just give the tenth of what he has or what he is. He doesn't just give a part of God who he is. He gives all of God who he is. And so in him, also, all of us. And ever after, this giving is changed in that moment. As Christ is offered up to the Father eternally in himself and for all of creation, now whenever his body gathers, whenever his body gathers, there's a feast and there's a table. And it is this same promise that today rejoice and be glad for not only is this the day that the Lord has made, but if you will receive it, if you will receive it, this is the promise here and today that our God has conquered over all of these things, that even in the difficulty and the brokenness that we experience, our life here and now opens up into joy as God has given himself, his only son, for our sake. And being able to give that, multiply that salvation, that gift of new life to all of us and to this whole world. And only if we pour out ourselves to find that there is more. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we are thankful this morning.
For the words that Moses speaks, this better word, this life of worship, Lord, I give you the thanks for all the work that you have done in this congregation over the years, as they have found ways to continue in that great heritage that Moses passes down through Jesus. This act, Lord, of receiving the gifts that you give and reoffering them back up to you so that they might be blessed and multiplied for your kingdom. Knowing, Lord, that you gave that one great gift, and in that great gift, all things have been offered back up to you and so are in this ceaseless divine economy of giving, of receiving, only finding that there is evermore. Lord, I pray that you give us thanksgiving, that you give us a spirit of joy as we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive light from light, life from life, the gift of your only Son, here and now. Amen. Amen.